One Sacred Pause with Jessica Windurl. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the One Sacred Pause podcast. I'm Jessica, your host, and um, I'm so excited to welcome you back to another week of conversations and inquiry into yoga and meditation and these practices that um, lead us into some interesting places with uh, our relationship with ourselves and a relationship with source. So happy to have you here. I also would just like to remind everybody that we are wrapping up season one shortly. This is episode 11. Um, So please go back, listen to old episodes if you're catching up. And if you have any recommendations for season two and who you'd like to hear on the podcast, send them my way to hello at atmanyogaschool.com. All right, enough of that. We'll get to this week's episode. I am so excited because it has been a very long time coming. And uh, this week I am going to be talking with Sati Kamiller about yoga history and kind of coming at, at what we think we know about the practice of yoga from perhaps a more scholarly or academic background or approach. So I am really excited. Welcome, Sati. Thank you. Finally. Finally. (laughs) Finally. But yeah, I'm happy to be here. Thank you. You're so welcome. All all things in good time. Yeah. (laughs) And um, so, yeah, you have just returned back to Oslo from a trip to the States and you were there presenting your thesis. Mm -hmm, My thesis research. I did over a hundred page thesis on a kind of examining the notion of authentic yoga Mm. and uh, within that uh, study, examining the whole discussion surrounding uh, whether the West has uh, delegitimized something that was uh, beautiful and pure and spiritually oriented to turn it into a commodified practice that was purely body centric, that whole line of dialogue. So I examined that in my thesis, my, my research. Which pretty much like, I'm so excited and I'm also kind of nervous um, for this conversation, but it's so important. I mean, this is a current issue that is in the media right now. It's at the forefront of a lot of discussions about yoga and particularly yoga in the West, like are, is what we're doing actually quote unquote yoga mm-hmm. or has it been rebranded repackaged mm-hmm. and um i think you have a unique perspective because mm-hmm. you spent a lot of time studying this from more of an academic background mm-hmm. which is very interesting and i think um unusual a lot of people don't go that way they go into the more culturally informed <laughs> right perspective on how we teach yoga and um you're also a yoga teacher so of mm-hmm. course you understand that side of it as well but basically your thesis was about myth busting right yeah Yeah. it's a myth busting thesis essentially though I I have to admit it it didn't always start out that way I just found out through the evidence through the research itself that this is this is very much about myth busting and I think we have a big problem when it comes to yoga education now I see the problem more now as a result of this research than I did previously and and that includes critiquing my own views Mm -hmm. that I had uh, before the research and through my many many years of (laughs) of teaching I find that I'm just disagreeing with a lot of what I said I kind of cringe now but that was the result of a very limited education Mm -hmm. 
um, a very biased education that I was given. And um, now coming at it through um, the lens that looks at textual evidence and um, uh, even archaeological evidence, mm. this has been a, a really exciting journey for me to kind of come in with a much more nuanced and complex story as to, you know, you know, addressing this notion of authentic yoga. Yeah, well, and that's why I'm like a little nervous because you and I have talked before about some of the things that many of us as yoga teachers, we've been taught over and over and over, like an easy one, yoga's 5,000 years old. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you have told me, well, like that might not actually be true. And mm -hmm. of course, there's always been a range. Some people are like, oh, it's 3,000 years old. Oh, it's 4,000. Oh, it's 5,000. But that's kind of the off-the-cuff response that most yoga teacher trainings teach. Right. Mine included. Right. And, you know, it's it's hard to deconstruct and evaluate what you've been taught when you don't have another reference point. And you have the reference point of going to an academic institution and uncovering some of this from a very factual basis. Right, exactly. So I guess I should backtrack a little bit and tell you that, you know, I was in a guru, you know, Indian teacher based study for mm -hmm. many, many years, you know, through the Ashtanga Vinyasa methodology. That was kind of my environment for many, many years. Uh, and prior to that, I was studying, you know, with Western teachers and everything. And a lot of the texts uh, that were referenced were sort of made for popular reading. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, of course, maybe a couple of commentaries of the sutras, Patanjali's yoga sutras. So those were kind of like the primary reference points. But when we actually look at the actual texts that we mostly study, we see the Gita, we see we see the Hatha Yoga Paripika, mm -hmm. and we see Patanjali, and then we see lots of like popular um, commentaries based on those texts, essentially. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty much it <laughs> when you really think about it you're like that's not much actually yeah you know when, when we're if we're talking about something that is quite old in a rich tradition there's not a lot of textual evidence um that that has been translated into english at the very least mm -hmm. but um what kind of brought me to this study was sort of a um i guess um i guess you could say i became disenchanted mm -hmm. with some of what I was um, experiencing um, and seeing in the uh, sort of Indian guru model of teaching and sort of the, the rhetoric that was being used and sort of psyche that it sort of, that developed around that rhetoric. Um, and largely it was like an anti-intellectualism. Mm -hmm. It was a fear of even scholars and academic study um, that was, um, I found very problematic mm -hmm. and a, a lack of, a welcome, a, a lack of critique, like a yeah. healthy environment which people could critique. And then on the other hand, I became very disenchanted with commercial, westernized, postural-based yoga as well. And so there are both dimensions. Um, I found a lot of areas where after many, many years of study and practice where there's just a lot of disconnects, things were adding up. But one of the main themes that kept coming up again and again and again was everyone was critiquing everybody else's methodology and saying it wasn't authentic. And and so you, I was hearing it from the Indian standpoint within the Joyce family, uh, this isn't authentic yoga. And then I would hear other Westerners critique postural yoga saying this is this is not authentic yoga. Mm -hmm. So then I decided this would be a really fantastic 
place to go into, be a wonderful door to walk through, which is let's, let's interrogate this mm-hmm. notion of authentic yoga. And there's really no end to blog posts where you can find people saying, you know, you, uh, this is not authentic or this is not accurate representation of Indian yoga. And then very quickly near the end of the writing, there's usually like a quick recipe card, as I call it, for hurry up and fix it. And usually that entails like, you know, read Patanjali, follow the eight limbs of Ashtanga Yoga, X, Y, and Z. It's mm-hmm. like a quick, like little bow, like tie it up. Now it's all good and life can... Now you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's like I'm, a PSA, a public service announcement. <laughs> exactly. And unfortunately, that whole thing is, is, is I, find, I have found, very misguided approach. Um, and it's based on a lot of assumptions. So these assumptions are kind of what I, I kind of dug into um, because you can't believe in authentic anything without mm-hmm. the notion of authenticity being propped up by other belief systems. Mm-hmm. So whether it's authentic Christianity or authentic Buddhism or an authentic yoga, that sits on other propositions. So I had to kind of do some digging to try to figure out, like, I certainly didn't find all of them, but I, I found a few key ones mm-hmm. that kept coming up again and again and again. And one was that yoga... Um, in the West is, is where the commodification of yoga began and it's where the body centric kind of focus really took hold and has been largely like, you know, de desacralized, you know, despiritualized. Mm-hmm. There was that. The other one was that yoga is inherently Hindu or of an Indian sort of root and basis. Um, and that Indian people have sort of a, a an inherent uh, knowledge of this, uh, yoga mm-hmm. or an inherent kind of wisdom tied to the practice and other people don't. Yeah. Um, and, um, and another thing I, I started interrogating was a lot of the, um, textual kind of references mm-hmm. based on, you know, we believe that yoga is kind of it, the way people talk about it, at least conversationally, that is somehow arose perfectly delineated. And, and it was like manifest, like poof, like there's this yoga and there's this philosophy. And usually that's uh, credited to Patanjali. Right. But Classical. of course it could also be, you know, depending on who you're speaking to, this notion of authenticity, the authority can be placed in like the Gita or the Hatha Yoga Pratipika or whatever. So there is this sort of um, commitment to essentialize yoga as this mm-hmm. one thing. And it has a doctrine and it has a set of practices affiliated with it. And that is authentic yoga. So anything that moves away from that, therefore, is illegit- illegitimate. Mm-hmm. You know? So these were like three major streams of thinking that I kept coming across through my research. And at the out at the end of my research, I realized that none of that really sticks. Yeah. It doesn't really hold water at the end of the day. It's a much more complex and nuanced story, and I think that's what people don't like. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that brings up two things. The first one is kind of what you said before, diving into asking the questions and kind of having that bravery to be like, all right, let's let's really chip away at what we think we know about yoga or authentic yoga, in quotes, um, or these practices that, I mean, you devoted a large part of your life to your adult life to teaching and studying. Mm-hmm. My, me too. And so I can understand that, you know, there's a little bit of, of discomfort at just even the thought of starting to investigate what 
what we think we know. Um, but I think that's the crux of the practice is if we stop asking questions, if we stop investigating and we just sit on, sit back and say, oh, sure, I'll believe that. Sure. They make a really good argument without being like, all right, well, where did that information actually come from? Um, we start to set ourselves up for a situation that's maybe going to lead more into fear-based defensive mechanisms of the practice. Right. And, but, but for me personally, I yeah. will say that the research was a breath of fresh air. I, yeah. I was, I was getting to a point in terms of the public dialogue around yoga yeah. and the politics and, and all of that, where I was just becoming disenchanted thoroughly yeah. by it all. And so research is really beautiful for me. <laughs> like yeah. Studying, just studying history and looking at not just yoga, but also like Buddhism, which has been a big part of my life mm -hmm. from a historically, you know, a historical place, uh, almost like a bird's eye view of looking at it as something that is dynamic and influenced by all kinds of forces that are happening at any point in history. Yeah. So for me, that was awesome because you can't pin um, traditions that have been around for thousands of years down. It resists yeah. being pinned down. <laughs> and I think it's because humans resist being pinned down. Yeah. They're too dynamic and they're too um, uh, participatory in, with the environment that they are living in at that time. Yeah. And so things are always going to change. It's like an essential truth uh, that's espoused at least in, in the Buddha Dharma and then also in, in various forms of Indian philosophy that, you know, we can trust in, in change. In, in the relative world being a dynamic uh, unfolding at any time. And yet we have something in us where we desperately want to essentialize and stabilize and create a sense of like a monolithic, like certainness, like this is like, this is it, this is the truth. Or mm -hmm. This is like the stable thing that I can hang on to um, and trust yeah. um, as, as being real. And funnily enough, that actually goes against a lot of the metaphysics <laughs> from the Indian subcontinent. But traditions generally resist that as well. So as far as we know, um, you know, the very earliest things that we have evidence of uh, in terms that could be regarded as yoga in terms of a spiritualized practice mm -hmm. um, only go back about 2,500 years, not 5,000. Um, and the, the word itself is constantly changed, uh, you know, has not always meant a spiritualized practice. So in there again, people have to do an incredible amount of research right. to delineate what the actual meaning of it is and making sure it's accurate. You can't just point to a text with the word yoga and say, well, there it is. Right. It, but that's what I was different. saying. And that's yeah. what I was actually just trying to compliment you in terms of. <laughs> taking that step to dig yeah. a little deeper and saying, oh, some book says it's yoga. Well, it must be yoga, you know, and actually being like, right. okay, well, where do I go to find, you know, other information that either supports or refutes this? And I think having that, um, th that interest in finding a more accurate representation of whatever it is you're studying, um, whether it's good or bad, negative or positive in terms of the outcome or what you find, but it's just that willingness to like look is really right. important. And, you know, for me, my background's in the legal world and in the law, you can't get away with fudging or making things up. Like it's very specific about what a possible answer might be. And you have to always cite your source. 
So for me, I really like that too in terms of, okay, you can't just make things up. <laughs> there has to be some sort of protocol or procedure or reference point that can be trusted. Um, and so I think from an academic standpoint, that's what you were doing is you're like, all right, I don't know what I'm going to find, but I need to find out something because the status quo for you wasn't working, but commercialism and sort of wishy-washy nature, perhaps that you were finding in some of the teachings. And yeah, well, for me, that's been the case. But when I saw when, when Mark Singleton's yoga body was published, it, it, you know, it, uh, it was like a firecracker, you know, you know, set yeah. off in large parts of various yoga communities, especially the Ashtanga community. Yeah. Um, and within that, some people embraced it and some people completely rejected it because it wasn't what their teacher said and yeah. it didn't match up with the rhetoric in which they had been taught. And I was like, no, this isn't sit well with me at all, yeah. actually. Um, so for me, um, embracing that type of research was uh, just very enlightening. And if anything, it has made me more emboldened to take more responsibility for my particular religious and spiritual life mm -hmm. than before, because through the history of, by seeing that everyone has, has essentially done that same thing, yeah. or they've abdicated that, you know, they've either abdicated or they've, took in like a more of a very like firm sense of uh, responsibility and yeah. like really looked at it critically and said, you know, what, it, what am I doing and why am I doing it? Yeah. Who do I view to be an authority uh, of yoga mm -hmm. and why? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So it's been a really uh, wonderful experience, but in terms of being able to essentialize yoga as this or that, you know, at this point, we can't do it whatsoever. Yeah. Um, we have wandering, you know, aesthetics who mm -hmm. were multi-faith, who were Buddhist and Jain, and uh, basically, um, who were basically wandering aesthetics who we can trace as having maybe the, perhaps the first people to have um, initiated certain practices that would be eventually codified into yoga. Mm -hmm. So what we have to realize is that when you're, when you're studying text too, um, the scholars that I look up to are, are trying to find uh, techniques before they're actually given the name mm -hmm. Hatha Yoga or Yoga. Yeah. They actually have to find what that is. Um, one of the coolest new discoveries is that I thought was really interesting is that the oldest written text um, that codified um, Hatha yoga text before the name was given to them it was a Buddhist text. It was a Vajrayana Buddhist text in the 11th century. So it shows you like how it was multi-faith. There was a lot of sharing of ideas. And I think it's something that we also kind of sometimes resist, which is a bit strange when we think about yoga, yeah. that it, it, it grew up in a, in a, in a, it grew up and evolved through debate through exchange and through an incredible diversity of views. Um, and certainly it wasn't postural you know, in the earliest sense. It was purely through various um, uh, meditations and body mortifications. They were, you know, you were basically subjugating your body, doing very extreme things to it in the service of the mind. And that is totally counter <laughs> to what we would say is yoga today. Yeah. You know, but that is something that um, 
basically everything that people say is yoga today. I could probably find something in, that isn't yoga, rather, could find something historically speaking that is representative of yoga. Yeah. Um, we have war. We've got warring bands of yoga tribes um, in the 1500s of the not yogis. Um, we've got, you know, body mortification and body negation. We've got misogyny. We've got psychic warfare. All under the umbrella of yoga yeah. at various times in history. So we have to, like, you know, get with the program and say we cannot romanticize yoga as this one thing. We can't even say it was purely meditational or it was purely invested in spiritual outcomes. You know, there were sections of or sects of uh, yoga practitioners that were purely interested in power um, and that were interested in like just psychic um, development. Yeah. Um, there, you know, women were largely not, you know, welcome <laughs> to the process. Um, and so we have to, we have to embrace that nuance. We yeah. have to take a clear, like open view of that and kind of like wrap our arms around it, I feel, and even wrap our hearts around it and be like, this is human nature. Yeah. This is uh, the complexity and the color of human activity. And, you know, where you sit within that larger story of yoga's evolution and development is, you know, largely in part because you made certain decisions and you're responding to your environment. Yeah. Um, so for me, it was really exciting. It's really exciting because, like, the you know, a lot of the times you'll see maybe in a lot of commentary or popular commentary on the internet is, you know, you shouldn't critique because it's not yoga or you shouldn't, you know, you know I think it's hysterical. I don't know. I, I haven't seen that so much. I, mean, I, I see more people saying, okay, well, let's ask questions. But I would, if I saw a comment like that, I think my jaw would hit the floor. Yeah. Be just like, because, what Kool-Aid are you drinking? Yeah. Because like Indian philosophy and Indian practice from the subcontinent arose from discord and yes. debate. I think we should be welcoming um, healthy uh, debate. Um, of course, what they were debating was very different than what we're debating today, and I think we have to keep that into view as well. But still, um, a lot of these sort of facile kind of like generalizations mm -hmm. about yoga being a peace-loving thing, and you know, and it's just not true. Yeah. Not only that, that we can't. It and like I said, it. Res it Yoga as a whole has just resisted essentialism. So when we look at, say, modern postural yoga in the West, when we actually kind of trace that particular line of uh, evolution, yeah, right. most everyone that, that is practicing modern postural yoga is practicing a recipe that's a blend of medieval hatha yoga with, you know, fitness trends and wrestling trends from Europe and gymnastics from Scandinavia, all kind of tied up into its own little soup that developed at the turn of the century, um, mixed in with uh, capitalism and mixed in with notions of science and the medicalized body. Um, anatomy. Anatomy. You know, it's, there's nothing about what we're doing today that could ever be reflected of something that was written in the fourth century. The whole vantage point is just radically different. Yeah. Um, and so we have to kind of like make peace, I think, make mm. peace with that. And, and picking up a book and trying to practice a few techniques 
doesn't necessarily mean in any way, shape, or form that what we're doing now somehow simulates what was being done um, centuries ago or even a couple hundred years ago. Yeah. We have to realize that there is an incredible amount of uh, complexity to everybody's situation. Yeah. And that, that took you into this moment right now. And when you parse through it, that's for me when it gets interesting. Yeah. Well, how did these ideas come to me? And how did these practices evolve? And who, you know, who started this, you know? So one of the most common things we hear is that it was the West, let's just say California practitioners <laughs> who kind of invented what we now know as, you know, postural yoga um, in, in conjunction with like, uh, Iyengar, et cetera, and so yeah. forth, and the Joyce's and the Krishnamacharya's. But, you know, you know, now we're finding that, you know, Yogendra, Sri Yogendra from South India is the quite possibly the first person to have uh, commodified yoga, to have invented the yoga class, where you basically just come and you pay money and he's indiscriminate to who you are. You, mm-hmm. know, you don't have to take him as your guru and you don't have to, you know believe any certain religious uh, beliefs or, or salvation, you know, thinking. You just come in and you come purely for uh, health benefits. Mm, for he, the asana. Mm-hmm, for the asana. He actually called his students patients. You know, you mm. come in and then you and you pay and then, and then you leave. And he was seeking people out, you know. He was like, come to me, come to me, you know. When was that? Like what time? Uh, he opened his center. It was either in nineteen eighteen or nineteen nineteen. Mm-hmm. So this is well yeah. before Krishnamacharya. Yeah, and then and right before, yeah, well before Krishnamacharya started, you know, his classes and you know, yeah, by the thirties and forties. So you know, it's it, you know, he is a particularly interesting figure for me because he also studied physical culture. There was a physical culture wave, and there was a dialectic between. East uh, India, rather, and European and Western forms of uh, medicine and physical culture. Mm-hmm. You know, some of it not so great. You know, that was uh, used by the British um, uh, Raj to kind of uh, train people uh, in the school system, et cetera, and so forth within India. But as a way to kind of be like, you are not strong, and you need these techniques. But what ended up happening, and what they didn't find, you know, foresee happening, was that the Indians many Indians would embrace it. Mm-hmm. And we actually have textual records of various Indian um, uh, physical, they're called physical culturists, saying everything's Indian now. You know, we have anything that comes from Europe is now Indian. Yeah. And establishing an Indian ownership over these practices. So there was an incredible amount of diversity of, of influences that were coming in um, that were... Uh, bumping up against what we could say medieval Hatha yoga. And then there was this incredible kind of dance of interest and then sort of an interweaving between Western uh, forms of thinking and Indian. And Indians made these decisions um, in terms of choosing to, you know, go out and and experiment. So like someone like Yogendra was, I consider him like, a radical he was a rebel you mm. know he left his guru and he was like i'm not interested in maintaining the status quo as i know it you know i want to go my own way and he very much did as far as the research shows um, another person of course is swami, swami kobalananda yeah and they both have institutes in south india today you know mm. their institutes have have uh, continued 
But I think one of the biggest problems I found, which is the reason we we believe in authentic yoga, is because <laughs> it's, it's not an accident. The reason we're confused is there's a reason we're confused. And the reason we're confused is that there has been associated rhetoric with while people were making changes and innovations and adaptation and appropriating from other forms of, 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 of physical culture and medicine and science, they were on the flip side also saying that what they were doing was thousands of years old in the one true way. So, and this even goes to like Vivekananda, who didn't even teach a physical methodology. Yeah. He, um, he was rewriting a, his own form of Hinduism, essentially, um, when he was in the United States out raising money. And, and you know, so we see it here with him where he, he was, he didn't like Hatha yoga at all. He thought Hatha yoga was a lowly practice and, you know, anything affiliated with postural practice and those wild ascetics was very lowly. So he wasn't keen on it, but he did like the Gita and he liked these more philosophical forms of yoga. And, you know, he was leading yoga classes in the United States to Victorians sitting in chairs, you know, it was very proper thing. But even he was saying, what I'm teaching you is the one pure uh, yoga, you know, and then Yogendra, who was wildly rebellious and innovative, and Kabayananda, who was also incredibly innovative with his, um, the medical, um, he, he really was into the medicalization of, of examining um, if he could empirically prove certain things in yogic texts had an empirical basis and empirical proof, which he seemed to believe. And so he was setting up all these incredible um, different types of experiments, trying to figure out, you know, uh, to reach certain outcomes with that. Um, but when you actually go on their websites today, um, which I highlighted in my research project, it's, we teach Patanjali yoga. We teach this yoga that's yeah. thousands of years old. And while, uh, Kavayanam, uh, well, actually the, um, Institute or Kavayadama where Swami Kavayananda's work continues, they do a little bit better at, um, kind of just coming forward that he was a rationalist and he was an empiricalist, um, uh, Sri Yogendra's website in their institute, they almost kind of like, they just swim right over the fact that he was really innovative, you yeah. know, really, really innovative. And, and this was a guy that wrote Hatha Yoga Simplified. You know, this was a guy that was really about access mm-hmm. and, and pulling pieces that he felt was necessary and then spreading it. Um, and then, but again, they say we, we teach Patanjali yoga. All of them, there's I'm, the whole fourth chapter of my thesis is focused on this crazy effort to align whatever you're doing with Patanjali. Mm. And it's, a, it's, it's probably the biggest problem we have right now, I think, in yoga education. It's really twisted our vantage point. It's made it Patanjali centric, which it has now have, I see is ridiculous. Uh, there's no reason why. We have to dethrone Patanjali. This is my opinion. Yeah. I really think that we need to dethrone Patanjali and place him in line with all the other kind of voices at the table and more voices than we know of right now because a lot hasn't been published or rather translated into English. Yeah. And that's going to be happening now a lot, I think, in the next 20, 30 years. So I think our yoga library is going to be a lot more diverse. But what it's happened is sort of like in the meantime while we're waiting for the research to come out and be translated yeah we we have to we have to hang tight but there there what there's this constant effort to i think this is my 
theory, just to resist criticism or mm-hmm. resist critique if what you're saying is somehow tied to something that the orthodox has decided is valuable, which is why Patanjali, yeah. you know, we even know about him is because he was basically embraced by the orthodoxy eventually and said, okay, now he represents yoga philosophy, even though he pulled from a bunch of different methodologies himself. That was, yeah, over know, a long there's, period there's nothing, of time. There's nothing stable about Patanjali, you yeah. know, as or monolithic about Patanjali. He was pulling and, and engaging and largely influenced by Buddhists, mm-hmm. Buddhist thinking as well. Um, but there's this constant need to, like, unite with Patanjali. Um, so I think that's been one of the main kind of rhetoric choices by teachers to say, you know, uh, my way or the highway, you know, my yeah. way is the right way because I'm somehow uniting what, with what I'm doing with Patanjali. Hey, yogi, are you ready to deepen your yoga practice and gain the tools to confidently teach a yoga class? Join the Atman Yoga School for one of their next teacher trainings in Norway with 200 and 340 hour programs and weekend immersions offered around the country. These trainings offer an inclusive, warm, and supportive community and are designed to serve the needs of the modern yogi while honoring the ancient wisdom of yoga and Ayurveda. Check out their website today for more information on the upcoming trainings at atmanyogaschool.com. That is atman, A-T-M-A-N, yogaschool, in one word, dot com, atmanyogaschool.com. Join the tribe today. This is really, really common. And maybe the most radical person to do this in the most radical way was Iyengar. Mm-hmm. I think I realized I have a, a lot of the issues I had with like rhetoric. And I was like, where are people getting this information? This makes no sense. Was from Iyengar. The more I researched, it's like, this makes no sense. Like he didn't just say what he was doing was sort of inspired by Patanjali or a new interpretation of Patanjali for the modern age. You, you know, he just said, you know, straight up, like, I'm doing it right. Like I, if you do asana, you can do all eight limbs in the asana and attain samadhi. And this has been picked up. Uh, I I found exact like verbatim, you know, sentence sentences where you know Joyce says exactly what what Iyengar says. Rather, short Joyce says exactly what Iyengar says. You know that you will attain samadhi. You know it'll just happen. I, I think it's absolutely ridiculous. This is insupportable, by the way. This is yeah. this isn't really like a debate. <laughs> like, this is there's nothing about Patanjali Yoga that had anything to do with elaborate asana practice. Right. And the whole idea that you can just attain samadhi without trying also seems a bit ridiculous to me, with the exception of the one off where, you know, you just happen to have one of those rather spontaneous experiences. But the way the system is set up, as far as I can tell, it's rather systematic. And, you know, you step one, step two, step three. It's a gradual, systematic process. And so, you know, the lengths people are willing to go to unite with Patanjali, it means that it has really uh, made it a problem in our yoga education, Mm -hmm. for many, many people, rather, to actually have an accurate understanding of what the hell Patanjali is saying in the first place. Yeah. You know, I mean, Patanjali... Patanjali's yoga is not for us. You know, mm-hmm. I think we just need to say that right now. Like, we'd, we'd have to subscribe to a worldview that most people don't agree with. Right. The metaphysics of Purusha and Prakriti, some people may take that to heart, but many people won't. When I go and teach it, most people don't understand it. You know, it's very challenging. Yeah. Well, you know, you're a woman, you're a householder, you're not an aesthetic male, you're married, you've got kids. Um if you're not like, it's not as he intended. Now it's one thing to say, 
I teach what he's doing as he initially intended. And it's another thing to say that we are radically reinterpreting it and adjusting it for a new context, mm-hmm. for a new age. I like that. And and being clear about what we think he meant. Yeah. And then what we are doing. And yeah. just being clear, that that provides a better, I think, educational experience for a student. Yeah. Where they can be critical and they can say, oh, I see what you're trying to do here. Right. Um, without trying to put put words in, 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 like, the sutra's mouth that aren't there. Right, yeah, or to, you know, follow them to the T. Right. You know, right. an extreme interpretation be, of But them. just be clear. But then why you would want to do that in the first place also needs mm-hmm. to be put into question because there's no reason to think that this is the yoga book. Yeah. And historically speaking, it is a book. It is a moment in time that yeah. was embraced by institutional powers, and that's why we know about it today. So... Even that needs to be called into question. Yeah. So, yeah. So I find the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I mean, I think there's there's so much to talk about here. And, you know, one thing that comes to my mind, the reason why so many people are quick to jump on this Patanjali bandwagon is, especially like in the modern era right now, there's so, so much division between the different quote unquote lineages and styles and approaches to yoga where you talk to somebody who teaches Iyengar, or they teach Ashtanga, or they teach Vinyasa, or they teach Yin, and they're like, oh, this is yoga. I do yoga. In- implying that if you do something else, you're not actually doing yoga. Mm-hmm. So it's the authentic yoga conversation. But then at least if you're trying to defend your position in this you know, imaginary conversation, if you fall back or default to Patanjali, nobody can argue with that. Right. On the surface, anyways. So if you're trying to, you know, have a conversation with a student or a teacher from a different style or lineage, rather than perhaps embracing the inquiry, being like, okay, well, cool, why do you think what you think? And why were you taught what you were taught? And, oh, well, let me share with you what my experiences have been and what my teachers taught me. Rather than having that openness, hopefully with a lack of judgment, lack of um, attacking, then it's much easier, I think, for people to just be like, you know what, rather than even have that conversation, we'll just say, oh, you're into Patanjali? Cool, me too. (laughs) Leave it at that. And I think that's where some of this problem is stemming from, at least from an anecdotal perspective, where it's just like, all right, it's easier to, rather than fight about it, we'll just agree to disagree. Mm -hmm. But even within that, I think people are still up in arms to some degree about what kind of yoga they teach or practice. Well, and that, that, that leads into the authentic conversation. Yeah. If what you're teaching can't be um, connected to something in the Indian subcontinent, then it's definitely illegitimate. But most of what everyone is teaching is a, a dialectic between East and West already. Yeah. Um, that was largely adopted by Indian teachers and then exported back out to, to Western audiences so, well, and I think that's a really important point because right now in this conversation, that's a little bit of a hot topic about, you know, cultural misappropriation and, okay, can you practice yoga if you're not Indian and, you know, where's the respect level and all of these things that are kind of in the mix right now. I, you just said, and I agree with this also, a lot of these practices, quote unquote, of yoga were being exported on purpose yeah, outside of India. And so can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, it's, it's history, right? It's, yeah. It's a huge, huge topic, and you could never, ever succinctly discuss it in detail. But 
they they were like Vivekananda, you know, went to the United States to kind of initially gain money. So he was a particular figure, but he had his own interests in coming to the West. And then as he kind of encountered a new context, started imbibing new information and uh, um, talking to new audiences, understanding their cultural context, and then adapted his. And then, you know, a whole new kind of way of being and, uh, and what he was writing and thinking kind of altered as a result. Mm. Um, Yogendra went to New York State. And he developed uh, a center up, I can't remember where exactly off the top of my head. I think it's Nyack, New York, but I could be wrong. Uh, near near Nyack, not too far. But And uh, he wasn't in the United States too, too long. Uh, he ended up going back to India at the behest of his father. But he was never allowed to go back into the United States because of the new eugenics laws. Mm-hmm. But what is weird about this whole story is that Yogendra himself was really into eugenics. He really believed that he was pro-eugenics. And I, I, the more history I study, the more I realize that this is very common. Like, we're like, oh, eugenics, you know? Yeah. But, I mean, but this was very, very common. And uh, a lot of people were discussing this and debating this and engaging with these ideas. Can you just say really quickly what eugenics is? The idea that that you can create like a pure person, a pure race, or you can alter your DNA in such a way where you create a perfect human. And Yogendra was very much into this idea. He believed that yoga could, um, would be sort of like create a perfect person. So he himself was very interested in these ideas. Um, So, yeah, so there was a an interest in engaging uh, Western audiences or engaging with Western audiences and sharing things at the time. But what we actually know, modern yoga research, I have to say, is is super, super, super young. So I think in the next 30 years or so, wow, we're going to have like a lot of new fun information. Um, And we are just digging up some really cool new stuff. There's a a scholar out of UC uh, Santa Barbara, I believe, who is doing a lot of work around traveling yoga teachers um, in the like 20s, 30s, 40s in the United States. And we're coming up with some pretty wild characters. Well, there Um, was quite a few. There was quite a few, more than we actually initially thought at the time. Yeah. Um, The the latest research suggests that up to 1% uh, all South Asians or uh, it was either South Asians or or basically people from the Indian subcontinent were, were... uh, making a living as yoga teachers. But what that actually meant was like, it could be anything. It could yeah. be like mysticism and seances and mind reading mixed in with diet and nutrition and a few yoga poses and some pranayama. Like yeah. it could be anything under the sun. So yeah. it was a real, it was a real mishmash of different, different things at that time. So it'd be really interesting. I'm really curious to see what comes up um, um, as we see kind yeah. of more of the people that actually were having an impact on the American psyche in regards to this, but you know, one of the, but in terms of this idea that, um, you know, Western people are colonizing this Indian thing and stripping it of all its beauty. Yeah. Um, and then kind of doing it what they will is like a colon, you know, something that is a, the, they're colonizing it essentially. It's a colonistic type of activity and behavior and thought. Um, I would I would agree actually with um, an amazing researcher named Natalie Quilly who discusses this very exact same thing regarding Buddhism. Mm. 
and Buddhism's had a lot more time. Uh, it's left India. It's traveled to a lot more countries than yeah. say yoga has, you know, um, in terms of length of time. You know, we have Japanese Buddhism and Chinese Buddhism. <laughs> yeah, we have all kinds of, we have American Buddhism and all this kind of thing. She uh, pointed out something really beautiful because this whole conversation has happened in Buddhist studies mm -hmm. already and at length. And she suggests that this whole idea, though, by people critiquing it and saying that, you know, you're not doing a pure thing, a pure Buddhism. You know, you've got to go back and you've got to get a pure Buddhism <laughs> and you need to change what you're doing, is actually um, just the same thing. You're actually reproducing um, this sort of uh, what would we consider uh, you're colonizing, colonizing ideas or colonizing theory, because which was the idea that there are pure races and there are pure cultures mm -hmm. and there are these pure things that were untouched and that we got to go back and we got to like find that pure untouched something yeah. that that was actually key to sort of the whole Orientalist ideology was that there's this pure thing that we mm -hmm. were going to access. Um, so by people criticizing and critiquing Western um, postural yoga practitioners and saying they got to go back and find that authentic yoga, actually they're perpetrating, they're reproducing the same colonial line yeah. of thinking without even knowing it, without even intending to. Yeah. It was a very, very interesting uh, vantage point. And I used a lot of her thinking in my, my research. So her thinking was that, yeah, we have to embrace the hybrid. And mm -hmm. I totally agree with her. Um, we have to widen the scope or the definition and allow traditions to like morph and change and alter as they interact with new cultures. And those people are going to respond to them how they will. And for our, our to try to micromanage that is going to be a, it's going to be a bad day. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's going to be a rough day. And, and the way people try to do it often is through ideas or thought or rhetoric surrounding this idea of essentializing something, essentializing Buddhism, essentializing yoga, and then using that as the main piece. Yeah. And you can't do that. Now, that doesn't mean you can't critique. I, if I had a whole other chapter of my thesis, I would have spent an entire chapter critiquing Western yoga mm -hmm. on other basis other than, you know, but you can't do it on the basis of it's different from this authentic version yeah um because by you making that choice let's just assume you choose that you believe that you know authentic yoga is patanjali yoga that's a highly idiosyncratic choice historically speaking yeah. it's a very specific choice that's not representative of some general consensus you know through the history of yoga you can't even say it's innately of orthodox hindu belief systems or buddhist systems or jain even um when the muslims uh, invaded India. Now we know that the Sufis appropriated yoga and created their own yoga. So like, who are we talking about here? Yeah. And at what point in history and what text and what teacher, at the end of the day, it's a highly personal decision. And we can, and, and that is really what it comes down to. I feel like at the end of the day, it's a highly personal decision where you put authority, where you place authority and saying, this is what I value, and this is what I'm going to try to model myself after. But the traditions as a whole are much too big and much too vast and much uh, too diverse to essentialize it in any one pocket. Yeah. Well, it sounds like the history is so shaky anyways in terms of us being able to 
to clearly understand and be like, okay, we can look at this book in history and this time and year, this is exactly what happened. Like we don't have that at least right now. So we do the best we can, but I agree. I find it very interesting when people become so proprietary around yoga. It's kind of like, well, how are you claiming that what you're doing is the true yoga? And in fact, you're the only one who can do that yoga and trying to exclude other people. Like, for example, in in the conversation that's happening in the community right now, the yoga industry community about like, okay, well, should you, is it misappropriating the practice to put your hands together in namaste or to sit in lotus or to, um, you know, do some of these other things that are really common chant om in a yoga class. What are your thoughts on that? Is, do we need to be careful with some of that stuff? Or do you think, um, are we in a position where we could possibly be causing offense to somebody from India where they're like, okay, you're not really practicing yoga and you shouldn't be practicing yoga because you're, you know, misappropriating the practice. That but again, every, every, everybody has a different idea about what that is. That's the whole point. Yeah. There is no consensus whatsoever. And, and then you have Indian cultural context yeah. and then you have what would probably be like within an Indian text. And then you have what would be within a religious philosophy. Yeah. All those mandates and protocols. Um, it's a, it's a complex soup. So for someone to, you know, pick one thing out, like go, I, I don't know how anyone could sit there and try to regulate that. It's, yeah. um, and I would have to say that it's made, my research has made me more tolerant of things like Christian yoga. You know, I would say before my research studies, I would probably be kind of like, ah, uh, I don't know, what's this, you know? And, uh, but now I see historically speaking, it's pretty much in line with, yeah, with what has happened historically, which is people take things and they bring it within the fold of their belief system. And then they make changes and adjustments. Will that offend other people coming from other belief systems using these practices in different contexts? Probably, <laughs> you know, but I'm certainly not going to be, uh, the one that's just going to try to like referee that, yeah. you know, people are going to do what they're going to do regarding that. Now that is not the same thing as being aggressively yes. uh, negligent and uh, very uh, aggressively kind of negative and, yeah. you know, and uh, demeaning, I guess would be a good word. Yeah. Intentionally Say, trying to in, harm. Intentionally trying to harm or intentionally demean things. I mean, I ran educational programs, you know, in Asia where we would learn with Rinpoche's and Lamas and we would follow the protocols within that particular context and try to be observant and respectful of, you know, all of the things that would happen within a temple. I'm, when I enter a Buddhist temple, I do my prostrations, you know, I, we follow, I follow those protocols. It was a very personal decision. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that, that increases education, you know, a good quality education is understanding those nuances and those complexities and um, taking time with those and reflecting on them. But then there were other cultural things that were really frustrating for me, like watching uh, women um, and all of us attend a, a teaching uh, by uh, a Rinpoche and then watching the female nuns constantly get up and move back because more male monks were constantly mm. filing in and they get to sit in front and the females go behind and watching them constantly do it and then pushing the lay people back. You know, there was like a very strict hierarchy of sitting, you know. Mm. 
and that you know that was tricky for me that was tough for me you know watching watching that happen you know but you know but that was also part of the educational experience in that I was observing and then having taking time to reflect on my experience regarding that and what were my beliefs and where did that come from and why and and also my research ended up uh, some of my research not this thesis but other work I did did go into actually feminism and Buddhism and what's happening for women with Buddhism oh. today, which is a whole other story. But I yeah, know. it's a very, 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 very interesting. So, yeah, but then there's also the question of, like, I always think of, I just come back to context. What mm. context are we, we talking about here? If we're talking about the United States of America, we kind of hopefully have made an agreement for tolerance of diversity, you know. And, you know, if people say, well, you shouldn't X that because that's not the way my grandpa does it or the way my aunt does it or the way my guru does it, the, then you're, you're superimposing two different contexts. You're saying this has to be exactly modeled in this context, in this context for it to be, to be valuable. Yeah. And I think that that is a little tricky. I don't think that always is going to work and I don't think it should work because it takes, um, it takes uh, some of the power out of the individual to really start asserting those qualities of taking responsibility for their choices in their spiritual life. You know, if indeed they do practice yoga as a spiritual discipline, that doesn't even discount people that choose to do it from a fitness-based perspective. And for those who are practicing postural yoga from a fitness-based perspective, the irony of all the research shows that actually it's not too far from a lot of what, where the information was coming from, you know, it was coming from forms of fitness and gymnastics and other things blended in with medieval Hatha yoga postures, you know? So you can't even be like, ah, too much about that in terms of, no, that's a million miles away. From oh, that's me. gym yoga. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Would you Because you're kind of like, actually, there was a lot of like KVIR, the bo- uh, amazing bodybuilder who was merging bodybuilding and developing amazing physique with yoga. Like yeah. he was keen on that. And there were a lot of people that were interested in that. But what's interesting, I think it was James Mallison, maybe perhaps, um, uh, and Mark Singleton said that I think as early as the 15th century, we have we have recommendations for, you know, doing it to look good, <laughs> doing, wow. doing certain yoga postures to, to look good. I remember. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And from the 13th century, we even have a text that, um, talks about welcoming atheists or basically materialists, people yeah. who have no spiritual orientation whatsoever to pra- yoga practices. So it's funny. We want to say that we just want to point to it and say, ah, oh, was this, you know, this person who created this superficial thing or made it a body centric thing or did that. Yeah. But really a lot of, uh, we have little hints of, of uh, evidence and textual evidence that there were, there was little bits of this flying around <laughs> several hundred years ago as well. And we can't, we can't stop the motion of society. It's going to keep in and now more than ever, the exchange of information. Oh yeah. It's instantaneous almost. Yeah, in many ways. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think, I think ultimately my particular mandate is like education, 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 that you just study, 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 um, and peel, peel back the layers of, of maybe where you're getting the information from, um, why people are saying what they're saying. Mm -hmm. And, and then as that information, which is really never ending, starts to interface with you, 
you know, take a good, uh, you know, critical look at it and then find where your heart is in relation to, to all this information. It's a very personal, personal thing. Yeah. You know, but for me, it's been very, very healing and very liberating thing because all I just realized that, oh, humans are constantly going to be making individual decisions that suit their context. And that is what a common thread I have seen, you know, through all of my yoga research, that everyone was doing that, you know, and all these texts, when we codify a text, it gives the impression of something being solid and being, you know, immutable to critique and, and this thing, you know, but all of those texts were often written to give maybe perhaps that impression or to maybe increase accessibility to certain pieces of information. But all of that was also as a result of a lot of different diverse sources of information, debate, ideas, and critique. So I don't think it's changed. My point is that I think what we have to see is, is like a constant flow of information that now we're wrestling with in the United States of America and Europe and now you know elsewhere. Yeah, well, and I think too it's, it's also just the point of where technology has come into play here, where now we're even more aware of what's going on in the U.S. or in Europe or in India because we can see everything online. And, you know, we can read on people's blogs or on Facebook, like, what their opinion on yoga is and what they think or their teacher has taught them. And so now we're kind of at this point where it's more obvious where there might be uh, dissonance between the, the traditions or lineages. And I think it, just like what you said, it's refreshing and it's actually liberating to think if we go back to the historical context as much as we can and actually find that everything is part of it, there is no one path we can find, no one lineage to follow, then it's kind of like, oh, well, that's great. Then maybe we can start to integrate what we see through our daily life, wherever that is, wherever we live, and the lens through which we view the world can then inform our yoga practice without it being right, without it being wrong, with letting it just be. And I think that does come back then too to that point of individuality. Like the only right answer here, based on what I've heard you say and, and what I would believe personally, is that they're all right answers. Well, they're all relative answers. They're all relative. They're all responses to certain aims and intentions and needs and, and so on and so forth. I would yeah. say right's a little tricky. Well, <laughs> so, so, so they're all, yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to say, well, could we flip it around and say, could we exclude something from a yoga practice? If someone thinks that they're practicing yoga or they say that they're practicing yoga, is there a point where yoga history would say, eh, you're wrong. You're actually not practicing yoga. Well, as far as I understand, there's no essential practices, but there yeah. are prototypical practices. So there are common threads that we see happening again and again and again. Yeah. You know, pranayama and or meditation or mudras or you know we can't really say there's uh, a worldview mm -hmm. <laughs> or a spiritual worldview because that's constantly been adapted or changed and we can't even say there's the essential practices but there have been prototypical practices like things that kept coming up and then have been rearranged and remade um, in different ways so it's a little tricky I wouldn't I would shy away from saying it has to be x y and z yeah but I would say there's there's prototypical practices mm -hmm. um and uh yeah but then but then at the same time when we actually go back and we actually take some time with um other texts 
from other centuries of, in history, and we maybe reflect on the depth of what they're saying, not to write it off either, to really think like, well, is there is there credibility in this? Like, mm-hmm. even though the worldview is so radically different from mine, is there is there is there credibility? Is there something here that maybe I'm dismissing? Maybe a common one would be self bodily mortification. Mm-hmm. Um, even in Patanjali, we get you know we get passages that the body ain't such a you know you know forget body positivity and yeah forget, you know body love and body this and body that you, you, know? you get like, to a point where you look at your body with disgust yeah <laughs> disgust is big big it was big in early Buddhism it was big you know to to look at it as a machine that's constant needs constant maintenance is you know. Got mucus needs mucus. You, know, you have to tend to the mucus. You got to tend to the <laughs> to all the secretions mm-hmm. at all times. It's kind of a high maintenance problem. And if you know, and, and to really think about that, like within their worldview, within their spiritual worldview, why why is the body viewed that way? And and maybe developing some empathy for that worldview, even if we choose not to own it ourselves, and even if it doesn't fit within our worldview, to think about that and to develop empathy for that. And think about like, oh, I could see how that works. Because of course, very briefly, like for many systems of philosophy to be in the body is to is proof that you're ignorant of who you really are. Yeah. So you know, you're ignorant of your true nature if you're in a body and you identify with the body. Sorry. You know, so that is a fundamental issue. And that was one way of dealing with the issue was to Separate. not to not honor it. Now, of course, there are other traditions that did the exact opposite. Yes. We're going we're gonna to transcend, but then we're going to do it by honoring the body. Yeah. And we're going to honor and transcend versus subjugate, then transcend. You know, yeah. there's been very interesting ways of working with this idea. But that also places into consideration other questions uh, with people who practice yoga, maybe for health benefits, but are also interested in these ideas. Yeah. Like, well, Sati, I get this question a lot sometimes. Like, well, how do I reduce my, my clinging to my body if, you know, I'm practicing so much with it, you know? Like, and that's a, it's a very good question. You know, those mm-hmm. are very, very subtle. Um, those are... I think more, you know, very tricky little subtle uh, differentiations in our awareness that we have to we have to look at. Like, you know, how would how, how do we act when we get sick? Yeah. You know, are you suffering more? You know, when you get sick, like, how'd that go? <laughs> so all of these, you know, these are just points of inquiry, but I find them all very very useful. So even though I argue in my thesis for embracing postural yoga as part of this unfolding dynamic wave of process where yoga has resisted being one person's anything yeah any period of time it doesn't necessarily mean that i advocate for a lack of self-awareness like if i had a preference yeah i would choose empathy i would choose the cultivation of certain qualities in the human being psyche and i would choose you know developing uh more of an educated awareness around the history and philosophy. Of course, these are my preferences, but I'm not so, you know, stupid to think that my preference should be the mandate. Yeah. But those are my preferences. I think people, of course, bloom with that type of um, activity or, of course, I wouldn't be pursuing certain contemplative practices. Yeah. You know? So, yeah, it's... <laughs> uh, I know. There's, there's so much here. So much here to talk about, but I think... You know, I just want to thank you so much for the work that you're doing and for, you know, helping other people 
who don't even know that they're ignorant, like myself, <laughs> helping me kind of, you know, helping us perhaps question in ways we didn't even know we could question. And I know that yoga history in particular is kind of an emerging um, area where scholars are starting to spend a little bit more time and hopefully unveil and cover more of these texts to help support the research that's being done. And, you know, so I just, I'm, I'm in awe of what you're doing and I think it's so important for the discussion and I just, I can't wait to see more. And, you know, we have to unfortunately wrap this up, but um, I just, yeah, thank you so much for, for being on the podcast and sharing your opinions and your research and yes, giving us all a lot to think about. Well, thank you very much. It was <laughs> awesome to be here, Jess. You're so welcome. <laughs> all right. Goodbye, everybody. Have a great week and we'll see you next week for the last episode of the season. Hada!